Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. This evening, I'm sat with Simon Harding Roots, Managing Director of the London Portfolio for the Crown Estate. Now, with 10 million square feet of office, retail, dining, leisure and residential space in London, the Crown Estate is one of the West End's largest property owners and a diverse customer base and a portfolio currently valued at £7.7 billion. And to introduce the man who's responsible for that, Simon, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Very happy to be here. Really good stuff. Now, let's let's kick off, shall we? Tell me a bit more. How does chapter one begin? Chapter one is is all too many years ago for my liking, but um, still pretty fresh, still pretty fresh in my mind, especially as I have teenage kids now looking for their first jobs. Um, started off, as, as I think many do, in, in pubs and bars with holiday jobs. Um, I was always very keen to earn my own money and, and be independent uh, as best as I could be and enjoyed spending my own money. I had I had some fun jobs as well. I was I was a lock keeper at Molesy Lock um, in Surrey, and that was just an incredible way to to spend a summer. Um, and interestingly, before I joined the Crown, one of the um, businesses I was talking to was was going to work um, back with Thames Water. So in a way, that would have been quite a nice full circle from lock keeper back back into their uh, senior staff. Um, so that was good. Got the best tan probably that I've ever had, um, being out on the lock all, all the time. Um, and a good best, workout, presumably. A good workout. And the pleasure cruisers would come through and be quite quite tipsy and very generous because you would let them through at night so they didn't have to bother. So um, very lucrative and a lot of fun. And I, I look back fondly on that. Um, a wonder, it's a wonder you ever left. I know, it was actually. It was. It was, it was really great. Um, and then I, I, I actually ended up in, it sounds far less glamorous and potentially some might say pretty boring, but in the local planning department at, at Elmbridge Borough Council, I was brought up in, in Weybridge in Surrey. And I, there was something about that experience is, is what triggered my whole career. So I was doing a, a, a BA of geography. I'm a human geographer through and through. I love geography and economics, but hadn't particularly related to the built environment side of things. But in this little local planning department in, a, in an area that I knew very well um, in terms of the vicinity, I, I just, it's partly because I think I showed interest and enthusiasm, and I think that was a bit uh, unusual in a, in a local authority. I got on very well with the, the leader of the council, who I think, again, was just sort of surprised that there was this, this person showing interest in it. And they ended up putting me on the public counter, so I was giving out all this free planning advice, completely unqualified. Um, but it, it just it reinforced to me how we shape our environment and how important it is to have uh, input into that and to be able to manage it properly. So it, it, now I realise that, that that was obviously a major trigger for me in terms of what I wanted to do um, because I just found it very stimulating to have to have that sort of, it's not really about control, but the, the ability to manage and create place even way back then in the late 80s uh, when nobody talked about placemaking. Um, it, was, it was very much part of what this role was. So from there, and with a geography degree, knowing that I wasn't going to be a geography teacher, 
had to really think about what I, I really wanted a professional career. I, again, I felt that probably would validate me um, and just sort of ensure that I had a career path if I wanted one uh, and could again earn, earn reasonable living. But at that point, it was so I was surrounded in this planning environment. So I go down, you know, becoming a planner. Uh, as people have said slightly disparagingly, or, or do I do the RICS version, which um, is planning and development um, and certainly has a more commercial focus on it, absolutely. Um, and ultimately, that's what I chose. Well, it's really good. It's always interesting to see um, uh, sort of how, how these sort of careers uh, begin and how we almost almost lost you to the waterways as well. <laughs> yes. um, probably the, the, the earliest part of, the, of, of your career with the exception of being the non-cognitive, yeah, probably follows quite a traditional sort of path, doesn't it? And the sense sort of, of qualifying, joining commercial practice. But there's something I did want us to spend a bit of time on, and, and that is the time of which you then take up the, these opportunities to go international. And in my, in my prep, I was really surprised about sort of how early and where you where you went into as your, your first sort of stint of international experience. So tell us a bit more about why you chose well, i don't want to sort of um spoil the surprise in terms of why you chose where you where you went to and and a bit about about the timing in terms of what was that like when they uh, when you'd make the decision to go sure sure yeah and i mean it's 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 odd because it was always something i knew that i would want to do so i wanted to get the professional qualification and as you say i took a traditional route through that but knew that was just sort of a means to an end and i felt having the professional qualification would make me more marketable overseas so it was always my intention to go and work and importantly live uh, overseas I, I, I love London I've, I've always otherwise lived in London and passionate about it but I just I, I was born in South Africa and my my parents split and my dad went to Saudi so I was I was often on a on a plane you know from the age of about eight or nine on my own and it was never a big deal. So the, the overseas bit was really important. And it, it was about it was really important for me to sort of not be pigeonholed, despite wanting the professional career and those sort of letters. It was then about moving on from that pigeonhole and doing something that would be have more breadth. And this, so my my opportunity came where the, in the good old fashioned paper version of a States Gazette at the back, there was this advert for um, a development manager for a company called Majid Alpha Tame, which certainly no one had heard of in those days, and in a place called Dubai, uh, which again, in 97, not many people had heard of Dubai either. Um, I thought, well, that looks interesting. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll have a look at this. Um, and sure enough, they whisked me out and I, I was interviewed there. And then within three months, I was arriving and the plane it was in August. So the temperatures were phenomenal. Um, blinking in the bright sun, um, having left gloomy London um, and uh, left a long-term relationship and just decided this this was what I was going to do. This was my next chapter. Uh, working for Majid Alfatain, which is a very large local family um, and sort of client side and getting off the plane and not knowing single soul not a single person in Dubai and it was incredibly scary and incredibly exhilarating at the same time. Now I, I, I want to sort of dive into a bit there about you mentioned it was something you always wanted to do and I and I, I think probably now I understand a bit more about that this obviously wasn't wasn't as as foreign a concept to you given what you mentioned about your your father 
what was it like arriving there at that time? So as a, a bit of a sort of time stamp there for anyone listening, this is 1997. You know, McDonald & Company is a, is a business. We opened a Dubai office, but but it wasn't, I think, sort of till the early 2000s um, uh, when the, probably the, the gold rush of sort of particularly sort of expats sort of moving into Dubai happened. So you're at least three years, possibly sort of more, well you know, well ahead of the curve, aren't yes. you? What was, it, what was it like being there at that? At that time, and, and maybe, you know, what was not only what was it like, but what did people think you were going to do? Yeah, I mean, it it it, it was definitely a bit wild west. I mean, it was it was frontier stuff. There was a hell of a lot of sand around, <laughs> which sounds obvious, but you were just always covered in sand and dust, and it it was just a few plots here and there that were being developed. And um, Majid with this this shopping center, which I ultimately built out in. It was out in the outskirts of Dubai, old Dubai at the time, in this called Dira, and um, there was just nothing else there. So it was it was quite strange, but it, it just as you you do get with these sort of very almost like the early settler expat communities. It was it was a great way of bringing people together because we were kind of all in it together. And Maf, Majidavate, Maf had had these huge, grand ambitions and and lots of money. Um, he owned the franchises for Toyota and Lexus and Carrefour, so he had brands that he could put in, and just this this huge ambition um, to actually start to do stuff. And I think that was one of the biggest things that I remember: the difference between London and again, I, I love it, but it. it was not an ambitious city. It, it wasn't a risk taker. It, it wasn't exciting. And coming to this place where anything was possible, literally, and you were there in the deep end and you either got on with it or you got out. And so, you know, it was incredibly exciting. And I think when people, friends and, and so on, started to visit, they would, in some senses, be quite horrified because there, there wasn't a lot there. Um, and you just made do with the with the beach club or whatever, which was also fairly basic. But you know, many of them could then also see the the huge potential to create to to create change to to bring change, and it it, it always I worry it sounds slightly cheesy because ultimately I was building massive shopping centres with with hotels and offices attached to them, so it had scale. But could you argue again using this this awfully overused phrase now place making that that was place making back then? And I think absolutely. I mean. Local UA nationals, families, visitors—they they had nowhere to go. It's an incredibly harsh environment, um, and you don't hang out in high streets and wander around or go for a nice Sunday walk in the country. I mean, it's very, very limiting. So, be, by creating obviously climate-controlled environments for people to hang out in and go for breakfast, go and do their shopping, go to the cinema in the evening, literally creating that sort of day-long destination, and then ultimately stay was was great and you could see people using it that the local UA nationals were, were loved it and it that was that was pretty exciting I mean again it made a difference and at one point Dira City Centre which was the centre I was building had more um, visitors than the Dubai airport Dubai International Airport for, for several years so you know it shows you in one hand it shows you how little there was to do <laughs> but on the other hand it was a start <laughs> of of this phenomenon that has now become Dubai, which um, I I went off after eight years there, and I, I sort of I meant to say, I mean, I, I went out to Dubai thinking, well, you know, 
give it a try. And if I don't like it, I can come on back straight away. And I thought, well, give it three years would be great. And and I ended up staying for eight years and, and it was the best thing I ever did. It was a complete game changer for me. Well, and this will be a question I'll, I'll keep coming back to. But given given that spell then, given everything you said about sort of frontier, sort of um, uh, being being involved uh, at sort of, you know the real sort of embryonic sort of stage of, of Dubai, for you personally, or maybe for for you and your career, what what do you think you were learning the most at that at that point? It it was a huge step change. I mean, it it, it it really in the deep end. I I'd come out of a you know very traditional couple of surveying practices, having done planning and development surveying in London. I mean, it, it, it's not really transferable to a to a massive client organisation that wants to build out hundreds of thousands of square feet of retail. So, you know, it's kind of, what am I doing? How on earth have I landed this job where as client, I was, you know, not only instructing full teams and making decisions on on big design decisions, but also managing contractors. So that was the the real exposure was was that and sat on site and in porter cabins once we were on site, um, dealing with main contractors. So it it was the full spectrum from the site assembly through to the actual completion which again at that stage I mean it's still quite rare now to be able to get the full thing but in those days in that stage of your career not not long qualified it it just would be unheard of in in the UK you'd be pigeonholed to be a planner or you'd be on the development side or you'd be a project manager uh, or you'd be a leasing person so I think the it, it, it was just this opportunity to do all of that and and frankly i i was way out of my depth i mean i I really didn't know what i was doing half the time but you you know you take your best guess and you talk to people um which is very important and and uh, you know admit when you don't know things but one sort of phrase i i often tell myself and and others is that just because you haven't done something doesn't mean you can't do it and i think that's really important. It's very simple, but you've, you've got to try new stuff and, and see how you get on. Um, and that's what I did a lot of. And, you know, property is complex, but it's not rocket science. Um, and, you know, you, you, can, you can get through it. Well, given all the good stuff you say about sort of math and, and Dubai and, uh, and over those sort of eight years, it does it does come to an end doesn't it and it's and it's not as simple as mo- as moving uh, employers you want once more you pack your bag don't you um and you set off to to pastures pastures new in uh, in 2005 i did yeah tell me a bit, uh, a bit more about that sure so i mean the, the what i loved about dubai was was the the diversity the cultural sensitivities the needing to learn how you you know create a whole new network of people and and sensitivities around that it was starting to become a bit of a of a madhouse in terms of of a lack of professionalism in in the sense of viability and proper planning and and doing things the right way which despite loving the adventure and and the sort of um being at the coal face uh, that was also i realized was very, actually very important to me so you know doing it right um, and, and basically, when it would often come down to you, just want one person would want a tower bigger than their cousins, you know, a few blocks down, as simple as that. Um, and a, another sort of life-changing point to me, which was a was a real challenge immediately, but ultimately has has been in a in a way a blessing, was that I was diagnosed with cancer. So I had, that was in two thousand and five, and that was one of those things. I was thirty seven. 
And you think, do I really want to be going through all of this in a place that I'm starting to get pretty fed up with? It's starting to wind me up. And the answer was no, because you, you have those, obviously you start to think, well, this, is this the life I want? You've got to live life to the full and to how long I've got. So one of those focus moments, which I think are really important in our lives, and I'm sure lots of people have them for different reasons, but just to a little kick up the backside to say, life's short is this what I want? I had actually, I, I should have mentioned, I had met my wife and had two children whilst I was also in Dubai. So my life had moved on a bit uh, for the better very much. But it was quite nice because then we were a little tribe moving on rather than Simon arriving, blinking in the sun on his own again. So yes, so I had the opportunity to think, well, what do I want to do next? Um, I've loved I've loved it. I've loved being with MAF, um, but definitely time to move on. Um, and another one of those sorts of junctions where I had the opportunity to come back to the UK, um, which sounded quite cute. It would have been down actually in Bristol to work with Land Securities on their big Bristol scheme. Um, so very nice, very blue chip, very highly respected. Or to go to into private equity um, to Bahrain. Bahrain has historically had quite a hub of, of private equity and banking uh, industry in it. And this is to work for one of those, a Sharia bank, bank, so learning about Islamic finance as well. And ultimately, I chose I chose that. I thought, well, the adventure's not over. Luckily, my wife's quite adventurous as well, and the kids didn't have a say, clearly, uh, far too young. Um, so Bahrain it was. And I thought, well, let's give this a go. I mean, it, it sounded very lucrative um, from a commercial point of view. But also, I just wanted to see what that was all about, being on that side of it and the pace so this was 2005, so it was in that build-up to the bubble bursting, if you like, in the, the financial crisis. I mean, this is, yeah, exactly. This, the sort of Dubai is at a real fever pitch, isn't it, at this, uh, this moment in time? Exactly. Um, and you're making a bit of a habit of this, aren't you? Sort of, uh, sort of leave, leaving red-hot markets from sort of, yeah, leaving London in sort of the, the late 90s, sort of leaving, leaving Dubai then in, in 2005. You're making a, um, making a good habit of this. It's weird, isn't it? And it's, I don't know if I've got the kiss of death, but I, I seem to, I don't <laughs> consciously do it thinking, oh, it's going to go down the pan. But um, it, I mean, it's what happened to Dubai. I mean, luckily, Bahrain was far more conservative in the, the way they'd invested and, and Dubai really suffered um, once, you know, past 2005. Um, and then I, yes, I was in this sort of buzzed up world of private equity for, for a couple of years in Bahrain, which was mad traveling the world completely unsustainable from a from an environmental perspective these days um but it was again an, another brilliant eye-opener I, I didn't enjoy it looking back in the sense of oh yeah they were fabulous times but th- there's always something positive comes out of it and it was a further recognition that just just making money is is not appealing to me it's it's really boring and you know very superficial and i i totally respect the especially the brains that are involved in these businesses you know i i I think it's phenomenal and i have nothing against it but there there was no creativity it was short term um there was no interest in in what you're trying to create culturally um and i just realized after two years no this this isn't for me at all and also bahrain is incredibly small Everyone knows where your business and you literally have to make sure you answer your mobile phone because they're probably watching you from across the Starbucks to make sure that you do. So it's it's just very, very sort of um, people. Some people love it and were there for many, many, many years, expats. 
um, but it didn't suit me um, or, or my wife. And it was funny because I was over in Shanghai looking to appoint contractors, actually, Chinese contractors to work for us in, in Bahrain. And I got a call to come and talk to some Irish guys who were there um, who have set up a business. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. One, one of them was not Irish, but Rob Tinknell, who, who subsequently went on to run Battersea. But he, he was there. There was a couple of the Irish people from Treasury Holdings who were setting up this business in Shanghai. And the Irish are just brilliant. So they took me, <laughs> took me out for an amazing dinner. We had a great evening. Shanghai is just a phenomenally exciting and fun and vibrant city. So I gave called my wife the next day and said, "What do you think? They're, they're offering me a job to come and come and work in Shanghai with them." And uh, she said, "Yeah, let's go for it." <laughs> so she's she's incredibly versatile. Um, so we we headed off there. That was in uh, yeah two thousand and five, two thousand seven. So apart apart from sort of uh, Mrs. Harding Harding roots, obviously sounds like a, a real adventurer. I wanted just to go back and take a couple of steps back, really, and. Because these are now sort of three very, very big steps in your career, aren't they? Sort of Dubai to Bahrain, then Bahrain, then to once to once more sort of a new territory. And all within sort of by the sounds, you know, very, very sort of close succession with, you know, with the with the diagnosis of, of cancer. Yeah. It must have been really easy for you to simply just pump the brakes on a career. And simply just to have sort of stuck to that that stable path, and and maybe it would have been sort of the returning back to the UK, sticking to to retail development. What is it about you, or what is it about those circumstances that made you once more want to go on another adventure and and, and yeah, another big roll of the dice? Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I think I, I suppose my I, I became even less risk averse once once I had the big C sort of hanging over me. Is that you? You just got to go for it. And I, uh, I, it was a difficult decision because obviously my my family were back in um, were back in London, and you know, is this the time I should sort of just come back and, and settle and do that for a bit? But I just had too much of a, an adventure spirit in, in me in terms of wanting to see more and try more, and and the cancer bit just really. Boosted that in terms of you don't know what's around the corner, so so let's let's go for it. Um, and also, I was quite I quite keen to, for my kids to see the world in in that sense to, to understand different cultures. And my wife's Jordanian, so I mean, we she was very happy in the Middle East whilst we were there, and that was fine. But this was a moving to Shanghai was a was a big step for all of us. And so that, you know, they, they were really keen on that. And the kids, by the time we left, were sort of nine and ten and were fluent in Mandarin. And so it just, I think, gave them a real diversity of, and focus on what the world is um, and different cultures and, and accepting, being accepting of them. Incredible. What would you say are the the lessons you've learned now, having sort of had, had this, what is it now... Um, 14 years isn't it that you've you've spent them between sort of Dubai Bahrain and China what what would you say are the big lessons you've learned then across those three different territories you know completely different sort of cultures I, I assume what can we help in terms of to impart back to to anyone listening I think it's it's really important to hold back on the judgment I think that's probably my biggest take on it because we we tend to be quite self-righteous as Brits and think in the West, that you know, our way is the right way, and look down our nose at people who don't quite do it like that. And 
my biggest take on these different cultures that I've lived in, and, and even Dubai to Bahrain are just completely different. And, and you probably know this, Nick, from your your dealings over there. I mean, there, there's quite, there's you know, some would say it's quite an arrogance about the the UA nationals, um, but they've they've turned a desert wasteland into a phenomenal global city. And I wouldn't say global city, but it's certainly an international destination. They're very driven. They're very motivated, and you know you you work with them, and you need to work at night with them in the majlis during Ramadan, and you, know, you you just have to adapt and not say, well, this is the way I do it. And and Bahrain very different. People just absolutely charming, much slower pace of life, and in a sense quite frustrating from that point of view because they kind of like would shrug the shoulders, almost I think the antithesis of Dubai on purpose. And then you get China, which was just brilliant. So things like spitting, (laughs) spitting in Carrefour, um, you know, as Westerners, we are horrified at that sort of thing. And, you know, sure, it's not great, certainly from a personal hygiene perspective, but it's just what they do. And it's not for us to judge that. And and personal space, they stand far too close to you. But again, you've just got to get over yourself. They don't, it's not a big deal to them. And you, you eventually your your harder edges soften up, and I, I think that's been really good for me because I think I mean I know I'm inclined to have them and have opinions we all do, but you know the the risk of getting set in your ways or looking down at people, and I I often think back, especially to some of those those China ones where you you can't just come in and do it the way we do it. I, I saw that actually with Western businesses arriving in in Shanghai trying to set up businesses say well this is how we do it in london you know this is the way it's got to be done and it just they'd get nowhere big big names from the states and from here so it, it's just sort of trying to understand their angle i think has been a, my biggest takeaway um, and it's been fascinating okay we will definitely definitely want to retur- return back to some of the the sort of international experience so once more as a time stamp then for the guys listening you're in china between 2007 and 2011 now we you know we've commented on your uh, on either your sort of good fortune or or vision about sort of moving from sort of um, from markets at their hottest. What was China like at at the, at this sort of time of the GFC? I mean, yeah, again, I I will put it down to luck. I mean, I I left the Middle East when it was starting to really not topple but wobble quite quite significantly, and and China, and it's not the reason I went, and it wasn't obvious when I went in 2007 because it happened in 2008 but was just booming and was again a very exciting place a real can-do ambition motivation energy to get stuff done big plans big master plans so you know that is I clearly just runs through my career in terms of that really ignites it for me it's very exciting and so I, I arrived there and then it turned out the bubble burst and the rest of the world. But but China, from the four years I was there, just continued to power ahead. So we had global growth, you know, way above anybody else. And um, things were just getting done. Massive investment from the government and just real um, energy to, to deliver at scale. And I was I was there with this this little Irish operator treasury, um, literally me and Rob Tinknell and, and the chairman Richard Barrett, and it was an incredibly exciting time to then build up a business, and and this was also culturally really fascinating in terms of the 
the the um, intelligence and drive and ambition from from the young local Chinese, the the PRC locals, who just were in awe of a of a working for a Western business. You know that was just massive result for them, and they they were so passionate. And you know, building my team was was eighty percent local um, Chinese, and it it was a really lovely time to be able to help them become a bit more professional in the way they operated but really harness their energy um, and 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 drive some incredible both developments and uh, purchases and investments um, and big regeneration projects in, in the center um, so yeah it, it was a it was a great time from that point of view whilst the rest of the world was was really slowing down um having having been i suppose you know a foreigner in in two different locations now so far what do you think did you learn enabled you to to make an impact when you arrived in china benefiting from from experience of from arriving in dubai and then bahrain very much the importance of stakeholders um, and building your network because all of those places i had none i had, had no network and, and no connections with stakeholders so that isn't scary to me at all uh, anymore um, but I can imagine it is to a lot of people and you think well what well, I can't go there I don't know anyone I've got no credibility how, how would that happen and you, you don't need it but you need to prioritize it and, and make sure I, I'm not a, a networky type of person I don't walk into a room and sort of start marching around thrusting my hand out that that's just not my personality at all but just understanding the need to earn the trust um, I think is very very important and not just assume because you're from London that everyone will think you're credible and look up to you you're in their country and and you've got to earn their trust Um, and there's a reason for that whether you know whether it's Dubai Bahrain or Shanghai they they've all been ripped off by the by the western expats for for many many decades Um, and they're they're building their own countries and they're proud of that and you have to accept you're you're a cog in that wheel. You know, you in the Middle East, you would never get the or China, you would never get the the residency. You don't ever own it, but you're there as a facilitator to help them get there. And I think that's important to know your role there, um, and therefore respect what it is they're trying to do. Well, that's a really nice segue then into talking about sort of um, residency because in two thousand and eleven. You make the decision to return back to uh, uh, to home shores, don't you? And you you come back to uh, to London in two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. Tell me a bit more about sort of what the decision was to to do that, um, and and what did you come back to do? Sure, that so that was after fourteen years on the road. Um, when as you remember, I, I said I'd give it a go and probably maximum of three so and and you do get to that point you you meet people who you think just will be permanent expats and they just kind of slightly have lost touch of of what reality is in in the sense so the the downside of the expat way of life is it's as i just said earlier you know you're never going to have ownership in that place you're you're there as a facilitator to help them do great things and you know, it comes to a point where you actually perhaps want to be a bit more grounded, um, live a slightly more normal normal routine. My kids were probably in need of getting into a, a longer term schooling rather than us moving them around all the time, which has advantages, but also certain obviously clear disadvantages and keeping them a bit unstable so um they decided we'd all come back i mentioned my wife's jordanian so she she'd never lived in the uk 
um, and neither had my kids. So that was quite weird. Um, coming back to my beloved London with a wife and two children who had never been here before, um, having to go through all the hassle, especially with my wife, in terms of getting her residency sorted out, um, which is not straightforward. But um, that's what we did. And again, you know, it was the right thing for us to do. We'd, we'd also always said a, a lot of, you get a lot of expats in these places that just moan and just complain and gripe. And we'd say, well, if you don't like it, get out, you know, go somewhere else or go home. And the minute we, we said we'd always check ourselves on that, and the minute we started to say, actually, this or that or this is sort of getting a bit annoying about this the spitting in car four maybe <laughs> maybe we've had enough of that um we thought well it's time to move on then you know we've we've obviously had it and we wanted to leave all of these places on a high and just have good memories of it so it was very clear to us to come back um it, it felt right and again you do have that doubt that seed in the back of your mind god am i going to be relevant to anybody now i've been away for 14 years and you know i don't i don't know the planners at westminster city council anymore and you know all that sort of stuff you think oh dear but but it you know you just you do it and i came back. i actually did come back with with treasury because at the time they owned battersea power station so i i hadn't intended to but they they convinced me to come back and um I was supposed to again support Rob Tinknell, who is now back at Battersea, uh, in delivering the the power station um, master plan. Um, but after about literally about six weeks of having been in post there, we were put into administration by Nama, which was was pretty annoying uh, to say the least, because they they'd signed off on my appointment as our bankers. It was a senior appointment, so they'd had to sign off on it, and no hint of administration anywhere. Ultimately, that's what happened. It, it was pretty sorry times, you know, it was very challenging for, for the team. We, we didn't have enough money to paint the hoardings. They were, they were falling down, you know, it was, it was pretty desperate. Um, and then the, uh, the management consultants come in with their files and you'll get interviewed and it all, you know, it's taken out of your hands. And you know, the, the annoying thing there was, it was easily a million quid spent on, on administration fees easily. And yet, the Malaysian funders for the scheme were already in place, and that's why I went because it, you know, the risks had appeared to be taken away. But and as as you will know, and, and probably many will, they are still in place, um, and so it was completely unnecessary. Um, having been through that and looking at it from the outside, the inside out, but it did actually give me an opportunity to think about well. You know, I landed back into the UK. That was great. Done a few weeks, a few months. What would I want to do if I don't stay at Battersea? Because they were, they were keen to keep some of the original team, of which I was one. And then the, again, these strange things happen. So at first, it was Cambridge University came knocking to say, "Look, would you be interested in delivering Northwest Cambridge?" And I thought well, that's quite interesting. I went up and had a look around, and I just couldn't get excited about Cambridge. And I don't mean to be down on Cambridge; it's lovely, and I'm sure a lot of people love being there. It just wasn't the city for me. It it didn't have what London has in terms of the the, the buzz and the excitement um, and the depth of sort of diversity. And then oddly, Imperial College came along. So it was obviously the time for universities. Um, and I thought, well, this is a lot more like it. I mean, for a start, you know, it's right bang in the centre of London. And like Cambridge, what a phenomenal university. Very commercially focused as well. And... So the opportunity there was to go in as chief operating officer. I was like, well, I'll go for the interview. I said to the head, I'm told, I'll go. But I mean, clearly, COO of a, of a major international university is kind of probably pushing it a bit. But anyway, that 
that work through and they had, it was quite a large property play associated with the role with the big expansion out at um at white city um so that was around a, a, an estate sort of five million square foot in south ken that was in a pretty sorry state so there was that was a big part of it but equally well running security running catering running all of the student housing running sports center everything you name it um i was i was up for uh, a team of 750 people um so yeah that was that was probably my my biggest stretch in that sense in terms of thinking goodness i've taken on way more than i can do here I mean that is it, that is incredible, isn't it? The the your ability then to change change gear from not only yeah, sort of presumably sort of what you are sort of professionally qualified to do, but in terms of everything from location, the people, the ta- the task at hand. Uh, I'm sure we we could chat we could chat forever about uh, about sort of how how you sort of move gears, but we're not we're not yet into sort of Simon's final gear, are we? So. I'll, I'll probably need just to, to park that and we'll pick that up another time. Um, what I am curious to do is to get into the meat of, of what comes after Imperial. Sure. Because I think we're, we're heading into, uh, into now, sort of, once more, another really, really big gig, aren't we? And that's, and that's with Grosvenor. Absolutely, yeah. Tell me a bit more about sort of what, what you were in, involved in there. The, I mean, the, the pool was very much to get back to my roots. And it was one of those where you look back and I had an incredible time at Imperial and it, the scale was phenomenal. I was very proud of, of being part of that that team. But I, I still felt it, I, I wasn't adding enough value. I, there was more I could do. Um, it was very slow moving. It was the big oil tanker sort of shuffling around. And I just wanted to get back into large scale, complicated development in London. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I was doing some of that at Imperial, but it wasn't commercially driven. It, it, was, it was obviously a very different setup. And again, it's, it's luck my have it. This is what happens, right? And so Gro- Grosvenor came knock- knocking and I just thought, Jeremy Newsom was also on the board. So he was the executive director at Grosvenor. He was on the board with me at Imperial and we got on incredibly well. It didn't come through Jeremy, but I, I knew enough about Grosvenor, obviously, anyway. But historically, in my surveying days, drivers journalists used to do work for Grosvenor, and you know they're very well respected. But very much the asset manager, um, fine tuning that engine, and and just driving the yield over many, many, many years. And when the headhunter said no, go go and see them, and I was like, well, I don't, I don't want to be an asset manager. I, I want to do large, complex projects, really big development, and really sort of create place and districts and, and neighbourhoods. And I said, I don't think Grosvenor do that. Um, they manage Mayfair and Belgravia really well, um, but that's not me. And so the, the headhunter said, look, just go and, go and see Peter Vernon, who was the, the chief exec at the time. So I did. And it was one of those interviews that I think I was in there for over two hours. We just massively clicked. And again, maybe going right back to non-cognate, he thought my sort of funny career path all over the world and then talking to him as COO of Imperial College was, was really interesting because it, it's not just the normal standard sort of property type London background and plumping into a, a big London estate. And they they did have big plans for, for rebooting their income, actually. So they, they'd had to cut sell up on quite a bit of the estate over the years. And they needed to reboot their income. And they saw the best way of doing that was to build out some large projects and, and hold them long term. So he'd created this new 
board position as an executive director for director of large complex projects, um, as well as being on the board and, and running the business uh, as part of a, the board team. Um, and I thought, well, this is exactly my sort of thing. It's in it's in my favourite city. It's doing the big complicated stuff, um, and and really making a difference. So, the the Grosvenor move was was very exciting, um, and it. You know, coming into a landed estate, I'm a huge supporter of the estates for what they can do. Um, they can convene because of their scale. And so it was, it was just a brilliant move for me. And I had five and a half very, very happy years there, um, running three of their large, their biggest projects um, that they've that they've done since Liverpool. So Liverpool, one was the last time they'd ventured into large-scale development. And I think, you know, fair to say it, it was a mixed bag for them. The The ultimate asset now is extremely good and performing extremely well, and they have a share in that, a large share in that. I think the, the process of delivering it was quite painful. Um, mm-hmm. And they were caught in a you know, bit of a perfect storm in that it was coming into recession. Um, they couldn't get the tenants or the income. They couldn't drive the income, and costs were rocketing. So, you know, that was quite unfortunate. And it made them pretty paranoid about going into large development again but they they felt this is what they did want to do now if i if i cut in now in preparation for our recording i spoke to a few people who worked very closely with you at grosvenor and and there was a common theme that both of those um, people sort of mentioned and that was how simon builds very strong relationships with his team is there anything in your run-up to to the role at grosvenor you think that that has meant that is has been sort of obviously a real either a strong point of yours or or a, a chief and a tenant in in terms of how you how you develop those relationships. Yeah, it's interesting feedback, isn't it? I I I, I totally think that probably points to my my times overseas, where you know I I've known nobody, I haven't had a network to rely on, and the the team you you need to build a strong team because there's you know there's there's always sort of weaker or sort of less less able people around so you need to build a strong team in order to, to come together and, and deliver and I think it was always really important to me that that was that was genuinely strong and that it wasn't just the nine to five um, and that we there were, there were strong synergies but also a lot of diversity in terms of who brings what to the table often rightly or wrongly especially in the expat world you would end up being friends with them as well so you know that would sometimes taught me lessons where I've been I became very close friends with my um, commercial surveyor my quantity surveyor on one of my schemes and ultimately find that found out he'd been defrauding (laughs) defrauding the company it's not a laughing matter but I had to then fire him and, and report him through to the police so it's an important balance. You've got to keep that that professional line, but equally well, I've always felt you've got to have fun at work, and that's something I, I can't help myself. <laughs> the team, the team. If I if I don't get on with my team, there's a problem. So yeah, it's really important to me. Out of interest, does that mean then, if you have those very strong bonds and, and occasions sort of uh, friendships as well, does that mean that you'd you'd favour a flatter structure as opposed to sort of an autocratic structure? Um. <sighs> Yeah, yes and no. I think it's somewhere in between. I think my from a, an operational point of view, it's better to have a, a limited number of reports just so that you can get your ha- your hands around them and your arms around them and, and work closely together. But then I've, I've always been very keen on the, the door open and having 
everybody feel comfortable talking to me. And I I, I hope that is the case. I, I do feel it is. Um, I, I enjoy that and I learn a lot from it. And the, the trouble with the flatter structure, I think equally well for the people in it, is I've I've been told this directly in, in flatter structures I've worked in. They, they don't see the progression. They can't see how they work their way up. If If everyone's just called a manager, say, you know, where do they go? How do they get recognition? Um, so I think it's a it's a mix. Um, it's a sort of sensible mix is what you need. And whilst it was something we, we haven't talked about, whilst you're at, at Grosvenor, one of those major schemes that was under your control was the Bermondsey scheme, wasn't it? Was indeed, yes. And this was a big scheme, wasn't it? I mean, it's it just for just for some reference it's 1500 homes it's 12 acres just south of the tube station and a 500 million pounds of sort of capex but again part of my research you know it was explained that it wasn't just the numbers to granger this this was part of the vision from you know sort of set from the sort of former ceo so there was an awful lot riding on this wasn't there absolutely and not you know, as, uh, and for anyone who's not too familiar with the, with the scheme you know that's also had it. Yeah, you know, had its uh, had its ups and downs, didn't it? During you know, during its sort of conception, as well, leading to a really big sort of um, uh, knockback when when it was originally sort of refused for planning. If I'm if I'm if if that's correct. Correct. Yes, it was. It was pretty devastating. <laughs> it was a pretty pretty tough night. Yes, it's had a it's had a long journey, and you know it, again it. The challenges were it just got swept up in in the political system of that time, where um, the the Labour Party, the left of the Labour Party, were were really surging in popularity um, through Jeremy Corbyn and, and and various others, and Southwark, which were, have been a Labour um, council for a while, and, and Lib Dem as well historically, were were slightly struggling in in terms of keeping a, a sensible sensible sort of mid path um, with some quite extreme politics around the edges and so we got, we kind of got ended up quite swept up in that um, and you know what we were genuinely trying to do is you know to this this vision point is create the biggest you know really substantial build to let portfolio that was affordable to to local people um, so so people that would be in guys hospital or local teachers and, and genuinely affordable um, and people could move through it, so a range of sizes and a managed, secure environment with the long-term landlord. And we just thought, well, what's not to like about that? But it was actually a very hard message to get across. There was a lot of distrust around us. I think, you know, when I understand, you know, you're working for a, a very high-profile, landed, um, very wealthy individual, and, you know, you need to explain... The, the viability of the scheme needs to stack up. You, you can't just keep digging deeper to put more money into it. Without running commercial schemes, you, you wouldn't have a business that's been around for 300 years. So th- that was some of the hardest stakeholder engagement I've, I've had to do is, is try and build credibility around that space. Now, I have interest. Your role at Grover, obviously, is, is, a, is a main board director. And, and yes, over, overseeing these major projects, but it's not exclusively Bermondsey, is it? Yet you talk about, you obviously you talk about sort of being really into the detail on this. Was there not a risk here about you being too close? Does that, you know, was there any, was there any deniability possible here? Did you hang, was, was there too much sort of hung on your shoulders on, on whether this was going to make or break? I think because it was such an important um, investment for Grosvenor, 
um, and the board, you know, right from the chairman and and his grace himself, the duke. It was a it's a very big step. This and so the profile in our business, not not just the, the cost associated with it, but the, the the profile and the reputational piece was so important that I needed to be chief sponsor. And so a lot of this political and stakeholder um, piece was was very much what I, I needed to do. It, it sucked a, a lot of my time, absolutely. But I felt, and I think it you know was right, that, that that was necessary. If you don't, again, coming back to this point, I suppose, if you don't build the trust and put the effort in, with, through the stakeholders and the, and the community engagement, you're you're going to not be successful, and you you do see that time and time again. And it it wasn't hard. I mean, I think anybody that worked on that project or was close to it was just naturally passionate about it. You couldn't help but be totally drawn into it as being a brilliant thing for London. And then you'd see London just blocking it, the the, the politics blocking it, and. Just it, it was very frustrating, you know, because we were passionate and we kept getting blockers. We we got the rejection with Southern Council, which was very very political, but it was a unanimous rejection. There was there was no arguing it, and ultimately we got called in um, by the mayor and were able to manage to get a, a scheme through them. And, and you know, they're a very professional team there, and that that was a huge huge win and we were just absolutely delighted and and i say it's it's really genuinely isn't about win for grosvenor just from a commercial perspective but but for creating something that i hope will get delivered at some point um as a as a great community so on on the back of the neck that great win begs the question why why did you leave leave grosvenor yeah, I think, I mean, the business evolved and, and businesses as well as people evolve all the time, of course. And we we went through a couple of couple more CEOs um, from Peter where I started. And the the vision for the, the sort of the grand placemaking and, and um, neighbourhood creation was, was shifting um, and becoming less of a focus. And I think there was more of a, a an effort to concentrate on directly on yield um, and and focus on the best easiest ways perhaps lowest risk ways of, of achieving that and so the big projects which I've been brought in to, to really champion were put on back burners or, or dropped or, or we sold out of so there really wasn't the role there for me um, and James Rayner who's the chief executive now is is a really great guy and we get on very well and it was just one of those sort of very grown-up conversations that you know this this you're not getting value for money for me I'm not getting challenge or, or excited about coming into this business um, this is probably a good good time to to move on and have a, an amicable split so that's what we did I, I sort of describe it as I, I ran out of runway really and so was looking for the next big opportunity and it you know these it's back into the point about being back in london the big opportunities they do come up you know obviously the batteries and the paddingtons and things they, they are around but they're they're not as frequently found as, as you get in some of the emerging countries like the middle east and china and so I, I was i was out there busily kissing frogs and i decided that i i want to be really honest with myself about not just going for the money or for you know the thing that sounds really sexy or or the next thing that lands on my lap but to I, I was very fortunate that I was able to just really take time and literally wrote out 
a note to myself about what's important to me and why, just as a sense check. So when I was talking to kissing these frogs, I would be like, actually, nope, that isn't, that's just not what I should be doing. And, you know, as I say, it kept me honest. And I just had to keep confident that that would be out there somewhere. And again, that's that wasn't easy. Um, you know, we've all got mortgages to pay. And it's sort of, you think, well, you know, at some point, <laughs> do I have to take on one of these frogs? Um, but then the crown came along and um, you, found, you found your prince charming that's it exactly right and uh you know that was quite amazing and a bit like grosvenor initially i was like, oh it's probably not for me it's you know they're just a great asset manager but it's not going to be ambitious enough they're, they're not going to be risk averse enough so but I, again i went on with it and of, of course it's it's entered a whole new chapter i knew alison nimmo very well we were at drivers jones together and she did amazing things in, in her tenure as ceo here in in treasure in the crown um transforming regent street and and building you know, a highly profitable office portfolio um but dan labad has come in since very different very more of my background in terms of development and construction incredibly ambitious incredibly energetic just really highly motivated to drive and lead the business into its next chapter um, and this is what's so exciting so to now land here which is hopefully my my eighth and final job <laughs> in my career i genuinely hope it will be to be you know in the center of london I, i'm actually dawned on me the other day i'm 100 yards from Suffolk Street, which is where I started my career in Drivers Jonas, and it's actually a crown building, um, so in St. James's Market here. And full cycle, bit of a world tour, but, you know, I'm, I'm in this incredible organisation that all of its profits go back to the nation, you know, which, you know, is, is just an incredible thing, the history around that. And so it's a, it's, it's a very wholesome it feels very wholesome to be driving commercial return for that benefit, but also back to this longer term horizon and scale means you can do things better um, and more thoughtfully. And so you can genuinely bring in the ESG um, fundamentals around that because you can plan and you can deal in districts. You can you can just make sure that, that the returns longer term are strong, but you can take sacrifices in the interim. So it's a very exciting time. You know, my remit is to come in and, and redraw the or redefine the strategic vision for London. I mean, it's an, quite an incredible job description. And I've got an £8 billion portfolio to also run and, and keep the business as usual working very well in a challenged environment where, you know, we're, we're trying to encourage people back onto trains to come into London. So very, very exciting times, I would say. So Simon, we spent lots and lots of time now sort of looking backwards. You know, I want to now turn our attention now to looking forwards. What would you say have you, uh, have you got left to learn? A lot. And I, I think this is, this is one of my key motivators. And, and so look, looking back, it, it's when, when I've stopped learning or stopped being stretched, as much as a, as a pressure and a stress it can be at the time, I realised that it's just boring. And I that's when pretty much every time I thought, no, I need something more and I, I need to be stretched and, and learning new things. Um, and whether that's living in different environments or, or being professionally stretched. And I, I feel professionally stretched at, at the Crown. I mean, this is a, an enormous estate. There's huge challenges. 
I, I feel you know it's it's quite nerve wracking, frankly, some days to, to to get your head around it and think, goodness, how how can I get through this? You know, being quite honest, um, but I I know I can because I have, and I, I again I think it's probably coming back to a bit of inner confidence that you you just have to go with it and sort of learn as you go along, and and that's what I I do love doing, um, and it's building new relationships again all the time. So again, back out to that external facing piece. I'm I'm loving that, um, really really enjoying it. Um, well, that is good advice. But with with that, Simon, we need to wrap uh, wrap it up. So, thank you very much for spending this time walking us through uh, through these careers, through these sort of milestones, um, and I've really really enjoyed it. So, thanks again very much. Pleasure, great to talk to you. Thanks, Nick. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.